Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In 1780, William Wilberforce entered British politics as a very young member of parliament. He was only 21 years old. He essentially bought his way in with some inheritance money. He was an avid gambler, loved the elite party life that his money could buy him, and basically he spent the first four years of his parliamentary career whining and dying and generally doing of uh, nothing of significance. Um, but all that changed four years later at the age of 25 when through the discipleship and personal evangelism of a friend named Isaac Milner, William Wilberforce came to understand and believe the gospel. This changed his life completely at that moment. And although he went through the normal process of sanctification that every Christian goes through, he did immediately evaluate his life and left behind many things that he understood to be completely incompatible with his new profession of faith. Well, he struggled greatly with his position as a parliamentarian, wondering if he could serve in politics and be an effective Christian. He sought out the counsel of an old friend, a pastor named John Newton, whom we know as the author of Amazing Grace. And it was Newton that convinced Wilberforce that God had put him in Parliament to glorify God by doing good to others. Two years later, William Wilberforce launched his heroic and historic campaign to end the slave trade and slavery in the British Empire. And for the next 20 years, through death threats, grave and painful illnesses, suffering, hardship, and hostile opposition, Wilberforce finally saw the abolition of the slave trade in 1807. And yet while the slave trade was abolished, slavery itself still existed because any slaves that had been traded up to that point were still enslaved, suffering, and oppressed. And so for the next 25 years after that, Wilberforce, together with a group of evangelical friends and champions for the cause of um, freedom for the slaves, known as the Clapham sect, um, they finally saw slavery outlawed entirely in the British Empire, which was all over the globe. And this was just days before Wilberforce's death in 1933. So what was it that caused Wilberforce to suffer for slaves for 45 years? To endure risk to his own life, chronic illness, pain, and incredible discouragement? I would suggest to you two words in answer to that question. Jesus and mercy. You see, when the Lord poured out his salvation on a rebel youth named William, he became radically changed forever, just as every Christian who's ever lived is made a new creature when they're rescued from the misery of sin and hell. And the new heart that God put in William was a heart that looked with compassion on the sufferings of others and that devoted itself to alleviating that suffering by any means possible. And he used his entire career as a parliamentarian when it would have been easier to ignore the plight of the suffering and live a very cushy life, he devoted his entire 45 years to the alleviation of suffering, not only of slaves, but of all manner of good causes. 
This is mercy. This is mercy. And it's what every Christian is increasingly known by, which is why Jesus says here in this fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful. Mercy is one of the most important words in any human language. In our English translation of the Bible, it appears over 200 times. 30 of those alone are in the book of Psalms. It's central to our knowledge of who God is. And I would suggest that without mercy, we will know nothing of salvation. And so we want to understand what Jesus means by mercy and merciful in this beatitude. And the biblical term mercy runs deep and wide. It's a very complex term. Through, through scripture, several words are needed to get at various aspects of what mercy is. And the word mercy is chosen as the English word to translate a number of Greek and Hebrew words. And so when we come across words like loving kindness, kindness, goodness, compassion, steadfast love, these are rounding out our understanding of mercy in the scriptures. And in this beatitude, Jesus' word for mercy is the one that's most often used in the New Testament, and it has a specific sense. Basically, mercy involves compassion on someone who is suffering and moving in compassion to alleviate that suffering. It also includes offering leniency and forgiveness to those who have wronged you. A good synonym would be the word pity. And in a world that's broken by sin, and in which people and all creation suffer the effects of sin, mercy reaches out into the midst of that suffering to lend a helping hand. And so let's boil all that down to a working definition of mercy. And I would suggest that mercy is pity and compassion on those who are suffering the effects of sin. It's mercy, uh, it's pity and compassion on those who are suffering the effects of sin. The effects may be many and varied. It may include homelessness as a result of drug addiction or illness as a result of lifestyle choices. It would include disease and illness that are not the consequence of lifestyle choices at all, but are seemingly random and have no correlation to anything that we've done. Whether it's chronic pain or natural disaster or poverty or broken relationships, whatever the suffering and whatever the cause, mercy reaches into that with the love of Jesus to help. But as soon as we get into that definition of mercy, it immediately raises a question for us. How is mercy different than other words that are very familiar to us? Perhaps the word grace. Mercy and grace often go together. And so Paul will sometimes say, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the difference between grace and mercy? We must know this in order to see what Jesus is saying. So let's start by considering how mercy is distinct from grace. Well, one of the most common definitions of grace is this. Grace is unmerited favor. And that's not a bad definition at all, actually. By saying it's unmerited, we understand that there's nothing that we can do in order to merit or deserve the grace and the favor that God gives to us. It's free. Those, are the, those who are the recipients of God's grace are the recipients of his favor, not because of anything in them, but because he has chosen to love them and show kindness and love to them. And so grace deals with the sinner by pardoning them for their sins. It's a declaration of release. It deals with guilt. It deals with the cause of suffering, which is sin, 
but it doesn't look as much at the suffering itself. That's where mercy comes in. And so if grace has pardon on the sinner, then mercy has pity on the, the sinner whose suffering is a result of their sin. Grace deals with the cause of misery, and mercy deals with the effects of misery. In short, God's grace is free forgiveness and favor to the sinner, and mercy is his pity and compassion on their suffering. Does that make sense? So one theologian has said that it, it was in grace that God loved the world, and in mercy that he sent his one and only son into that world to save his people from their sins. But that's not the only idea from which we need to distinguish mercy. Another word that may seem to have no positive relationship to mercy is the word justice. Some people have the very wrong-headed idea that mercy means ignoring justice and just letting people slide. Just be merciful to them. Let it slide. But if God has mercy on sinners, and he does, then we know that mercy cannot mean ignoring sin because God can no more ignore sin than he can sin himself. He is a just and holy God, and he must deal with sin. And so mercy doesn't just give a free pass, but if I could put it simply, I would say that mercy absorbs justice so that justice is upheld while mercy is extended. And where do we see this more than at the cross of Christ? The spotless son of God stood condemned in place of sinners like us and absorbed in himself the full weight of God's wrath for our sins so that we might be saved. The apostle Peter writes in chapter 2 of his first epistle, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And it's in that way that God maintains perfect justice while reaching out in mercy to save us from the miseries of sin, death, and condemnation. And this is ultimately at the cross where we see the seemingly incompatible ideas of mercy and justice, of righteousness and peace coming together in the Son of God. The old authorized version puts it in Psalm 85.10, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? And so now, a sinner who recognizes that he's under the weight of guilt that he cannot bear, he can see his guilt laid on the shoulders of the spotless son of God and rescued from his misery of sin. A sinner can be saved by turning from his allegiance to sin and trusting in Christ alone who bore the justice of God for us and offers mercy and grace where we didn't deserve it. Has God's justice for your sins, yours personally, been satisfied at the cross? Do you know that Jesus died for your sins, not just for our sins? Have you trusted in that son of God? Have you declared your faith in him as the only sin bearer for you and left off any hope of trying to do it on your own in any measure? If you haven't, then you can believe in the one who is God's gracious gift of mercy for your salvation now and be saved. And if you have been saved, then praise the Lord. His mercy is more. We're going to sing that in a bit. Well, that's mercy. 
and how it distinguishes itself from grace and justice. And now let's bring it to bear on our beatitude here. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. In other words, Jesus says that the people who are blessed and highly favored by God, those who are highly favored by God, are those who, like God, are characterized by pity and compassion and a forgiving spirit toward those who are suffering the effects of sin. He's not talking about people who once in a while do some merciful things, people who once in a while go and serve on a holiday at the mission. Anybody can do that. Jesus has a very specific kind of mercy in mind. He's talking about the merciful person who, because of the mercy of God to them, is disposed to be merciful to others as a life. In essence, he says, blessed are those who love the miserable and have a forgiving spirit toward those who sin against them. That's what he means. But where does that kind of thing come from? We understand it as a concept, but now we want to know, where does it happen? How do we become merciful? And we know it's not natural, right? But it is important. And here in the Beatitudes, as we've understood that what Jesus is doing at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is he's painting a picture of a person who is redeemed by God, who then shows the truth of their redemption in the ways that are listed out in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And so here Jesus is talking about somebody who is forgiven. And he says in these Beatitudes, blessed are these people. This is the picture of the saved person. And if the saved person is merciful, then how do we become merciful? Because you know we have a vested interest in it. So we certainly want to make sure of our salvation. So where does this kind of mercifulness grow? Well, mercifulness is no kind of human invention. As sinful creatures who are both guilty and unjust, there's no way we could either invent it or pull it off. Now, something as glorious and beautiful as mercy has no human origin. Rather, it comes from our merciful God. From our merciful God. Turn with me, if you would, briefly to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. Perhaps you'll recall that Moses, um, at God's command, has led the people of Israel um, through a series of miracles worked by God out of slavery to Egypt into the desert. They are finally, after 400 years, not slaves anymore. And Moses goes up on a mountain to meet with God and then to come back down and give people the word. Um, and they requested that, by the way. They were terrified. <laughs> and so Moses goes and does this. And when he comes down the mountain, he sees God's people in rebellious revelry, in all manner of unrighteousness, having just been brought out of Egypt by God, now turning their backs on God and worshiping an idol and saying, well, this is our God. We'll worship God. This is the one, this golden calf. It's a pitiful scene, and God would destroy the people, but Moses intercedes for them. And God, in his mercy and his grace, spares them. And then Moses makes this request. He says, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I will. Go up on the mountain, and I'm going to pass by, and I'll show you my glory. And so whenever we know that God is going to show his glory, let's pay attention, because we're going to see the essence of who God is. And God reveals his glory by declaring his name. And so we pick up 
in verse 5, and I'll read through verse 8. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. God's glory is God himself, and God himself is merciful. This is where mercy comes from. We cannot understand who the one true God is apart from his mercy. He takes pity on sinners like us and reaches into our miserable plight of condemnation that we deserve to relieve us of our suffering through the suffering of his son. He does this in more ways day by day than we could possibly count. And Jesus says that because he is merciful, he, the merciful God, because he is merciful to us, that we are therefore merciful to others. And so it doesn't surprise us in the least when the author of Hebrews calls Jesus our merciful high priest. And the whole main point of the Sermon on the Mount, if you'll recall, all three of these chapters boil down to one main point, is that those who are saved look like their savior. They look like Christ. Their lives increasingly reflect the character of the God who has saved them. And so Jesus declares the merciful to be blessed because these merciful people are those who themselves have received mercy from Jesus. And now we're in a place to see the relationship of the fifth beatitude to the four that have gone before. And so now we're at a turning point in our look at the Beatitudes. The first four have to do with the inward spiritual life of the believer. The remaining ones have to do with how that inward spiritual life plays out in relationship to other people. And the first thing that it begins with is mercifulness. And so starting with the first, we see that the Christian is poor in spirit. He's recognized that he has nothing in him to commend himself to God, and so he throws himself on the grace and mercy of God in Christ because he knows he has no other hope he is spiritually impoverished. And because of that, he mourns that his sin gets in the way of a relationship with God. He grieves that having been reconciled to God, he continues in the sin that he hates and seeks to turn from it, which produces meekness, which as we saw, especially from Psalm 37, is a posture of trusting in the Lord while seeking to do his will. It deals with humility, humbly walking in his ways. And that kind of a person hungers and thirsts for righteousness, specifically Christ's righteousness to cover their sin and Christ's righteousness to work itself out in their character. That's the logic of it all. And now when we see that kind of person out on the street, what do they look like? They look like a merciful person who has pity and compassion on the suffering all around them because that's exactly what Jesus did when he came and walked the streets. And why is this person that way? Well, because they've received more mercy than they know what to do with. More mercy than they could ever show to all the world combined has been shown to them in Christ in their salvation. 
The unbounded mercy of God to us is the reason mercy is required of us. And it's why being an unmerciful person is so heinous in the sight of God. And that's the point of the parable of the unforgiving servant that Riker read to us earlier. This servant had been forgiven a debt many lifetimes worth of paychecks that he could never repay. And then he went out and required a small pittance by comparison of this, his fellow servant. Now, to be fair, it was this servant owed this one about three months worth of paychecks. So it's not an insignificant amount, but it's completely insignificant compared to what that servant had been forgiven by his master. The great Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, wrote this. Let these truths sink down deeply into our hearts. It is a melancholy fact that there are few Christian duties so little practiced as that of forgiveness. It is sad to see how much bitterness, unmercifulness, spite, hardness, and unkindness there is among men. Yet there are few duties so strongly enforced in the New Testament scriptures as this duty is and few, the neglect of which so clearly shuts a man out of the kingdom of God. Ryle's able to speak about the unmerciful being shut out of God's kingdom because, as we'll see in a few minutes, unmercifulness in a professing Christian is a chief sign that that person has never truly known the mercy of God for them. Which leads us to the point of what Jesus is saying in this fifth beatitude. Here's the main idea of this beatitude. Because God is merciful to his people, his people are merciful to others. Because God is merciful to his people, his people are merciful to others. And now let's see what this mercy looks like. So let's remember our definition of mercy. Mercy is pity and compassion on those who are suffering the effects of sin in all its different forms, whether extending forgiveness to a person who's wronged us or learning of a need that we're in a position to meet or hearing of someone who's suffering a setback or a loss. Christian mercy steps into that suffering for the sake of Christ. And this should be enough to tip us off to the fact that we don't produce this in ourselves. It's not natural, it's supernatural. And so the first thing we need to understand about what mercy looks like is that it looks an awful lot like depending on God to do what God does. We're not going to do it ourselves. And so we prayerfully, in communion with Christ, depend on him to bear out that merciful spirit in us, which we ourselves have received from him. Two biblical pictures come immediately to mind when I think of this mercy and what it looks like. The first has to do with a man we come to affectionately call the Good Samaritan. This is a guy from an ethnic people group in hostile opposition to the Jews. Goes back many, many years. And this Samaritan is walking by and sees a Jew lying on the road, beaten, robbed, and left for dead and dying. Another Samaritan might have gone, and good riddance. Not this one. This Samaritan knew something of mercy. And so while this Jew's own religious leaders and pastors walked by on the road, moved to the other side, and went on their merry way, this Samaritan, a natural enemy of this man, stops, sees him in his need, and takes care of him. And not only that, but he bears the cost of his recuperation himself. This is mercy. It also looks like Jesus hanging on the cross, looking with pity on the very Jewish leaders and the Romans who had just crucified him. And in his agony, in his separation from his father's 
kindness at that moment as he's bearing the wrath of sin. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is our merciful Lord. And would we not have mercy on others? Mercy looks like recognizing the greatest and most desperate kind of suffering imaginable. The condemnation of sin and death and hell forever. Seeing that kind of suffering and reaching into it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I would suggest that personal evangelism and missions is the most profound and deepest kind of mercy that you can ever have on another person. For all the physical acts of mercy that Jesus did in healing the sick, in raising the dead, in providing for people with food and other things, he says this about why he came. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That was the greatest mercy that was shown or could ever be shown. So will you perhaps consider going across the street to a neighbor, to an unbelieving relative or a friend with the gospel, to show them mercy for a suffering they don't even know is coming to them. Perhaps you'd consider going across borders to a people group that has never had a gospel witness. That's mercy. Lord, help us be merciful evangelists. Mercy looks like seeing a need and springing into action to meet that need as we're able. See, here's the beautiful thing about God's providence. He's put each of us with our unique gifts, life experiences, skills, and passions in different places, hobby clubs, schools, whatever the case may be, neighborhoods, our own unique context that is specific to us in God's providence in order that we may show mercy to the suffering people around us. And so I can't do mercy to your neighbor the way that you can because I'm not in your shoes and vice versa. Mercy, as we meditate on the gospel and all that God is for us in Christ, gives us the eyes to see the opportunities that God has already prepared for us. And the Holy Spirit mobilizes the mercy of God in us to meet those needs. And the reason that there are Christians in the church who do not mercifully serve others is because there are Christians in the church who haven't thought too much on the gospel. Because when we do, when we meditate on that and return to it day after day, and as we see Jesus more clearly, we grow more merciful. And I would suggest that mercifulness looks like not being the source of suffering to somebody else, beginning with those in our own home. My son is at home sick, so my wife is not here. Don't tell her I said it. <laughs> That's okay. She's going to listen later online. But mercy looks like not being the source of somebody else's suffering that another merciful person has to come in and relieve them of. How we treat, in the name of Christ, those who are closest to us can be either a source of suffering or a source of mercy. Let us be merciful in our own homes to our closest neighbors, loving our neighbors as ourselves, by loving, serving our wives, respecting, submitting to, and serving our husbands and families, gently dealing with our children, shepherding them to Jesus with the love of a father, not with a grumpy face, and then welcoming people into our home to share a meal. Mercy looks like not being the source of another's suffering, but being somebody who alleviates it. And it looks like an attitude of forgiveness when the natural tendency is to harbor a grudge or to be bitter. As we've seen, the Lord has forgiven us so much more than we could ever forgive anyone else. And that doesn't mean that forgiveness is cheap or easy, folks. It doesn't. 
If you think forgiveness is cheap or easy, then read Isaiah 53. That chapter could be a lot shorter if all the prophet said was Jesus died, the suffering servant suffered, and now we are made new. But it doesn't say that. Verse after verse after verse details the suffering, brokenness, crushing, chastisement that Jesus endured for us so that God would have mercy. It shows his suffering to alleviate ours. It's an itemized bill of redemption. Forgiveness is not cheap or easy, but it is what Christians do because of the God who has done it for them. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now I will say, there are some extreme cases, and I mean more extreme and more rare, such as abuse of various kinds, rape, things like that, where reconciliation and continued relationship with an offender is neither wise nor possible. But mercy doesn't need reconciliation. Mercy is an attitude of forgiveness toward God. I mean, in the sight of God, toward that person that we may never be able to have a relationship with moving forward because the the rupture has been so deep. And in those circumstances, mercy still happens. Mercy looks like pity and compassion on those who are suffering the effects of sin in all its forms, whether toward us or toward others, or simply because we live in a world that is profoundly soaked with sin. So that's what mercifulness looks like. Now, why are the, what are the merciful, these kinds of people, what do they receive? That's the next question we need to be asking. And what does Jesus say here in verse 7? They shall receive what? Mercy. We come full circle. We've seen that in the previous sermons on the Beatitudes, the blessed ones are those, these blessed people, are the ones who God has lavished his grace on. He's just, he's just poured it out in full measure, pressed down and running over. We're full of God's grace and favor, and, and there's no spiritual blessing in Christ that is withheld from us. That's what it means to be blessed in the beatitude sense. And that kind of person can expect the blessing of mercy in the future. One of the greatest spiritual blessings we could ever receive is God's mercy when the Lord returns to judge the living and the dead. He's talking about this kind of mercy that is given to gospel-centered mercy showers. Because remember, this is a supernatural thing that only comes as we supernaturally receive the mercy of God held out for us in Christ. And so the motivating factor for that kind of mercy, that kind of disposition that is so humanly unnatural, is the gospel. And they will be given eternal relief from suffering as Jesus comes to bring their salvation to completion. And here's where the temptation to get the order wrong comes into play. If we're in Matthew 5, turn over with me one page to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 12 through 15 the end of the Lord's Prayer and what immediately is said after. Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
many have read these words and gotten the gospel doctrine all reversed by thinking that if they do good to others, God will do good to them. If they forgive others, God will forgive them. That is karma, not gospel. There's no such thing as Christian karma. So we have to get that out of our heads completely. We cannot get the gospel wrong, because when we do, we leave Christianity behind entirely. All of scripture is in harmony with all of scripture, and all of scripture clearly teaches that it is by grace you are saved through faith, not your own doing, gift of God. And so when Jesus is saying that those who are forgiving will receive forgiveness and those who are merciful will receive mercy, he's saying you will not receive mercy because you have been merciful. He's saying that if you forgive others and show them mercy, it's because God has already forgiven you and shown mercy upon you in Christ. When you've already been delivered by God's mercy through the gospel, you tend to be a merciful person. And what can the merciful expect when Jesus returns? Mercy from beginning to end, entrance into the kingdom, which is why when Jesus returns, as we heard read in Matthew 25, and he sits on his glorious throne, he gathers people into two groups, sheep, goats, those who will enter the kingdom and those who will not. And what does he say to them? This group of people has obviously gotten into this category because they have believed the gospel of God's grace through Christ, free and full. And then what have they done with that? They've gone out and visited the sick, the poor, the naked, the imprisoned. They've done mercy. And Jesus says, you've done this to me. They're confused about the whole thing. They haven't been out trying to earn God's favor through doing those things. It was simply the natural outflow of what God had done for them. And so Jesus explains, whatever you have done to the least of these, my brothers, my suffering saints, you have done to me. And this group over here has not been merciful because they've never known the mercy of God in Christ and they will not be shown mercy. And that's the gospel order of the whole thing. That's the gospel order of the, seventh, or of the fifth beatitude in verse seven. Well, I hope at this point we pretty well understand what it means to be merciful. We know that this kind of thing comes from God and reflects God's character. We appreciate that true mercy flows from the gospel, not from ourselves, and so we get the order correct. And so I would simply leave you with a question. How then should you seek mercy? How should you seek, how do you seek to become a merciful person? The kind of person that Jesus declares is blessed. Well, if you have never embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the Son of God, spotless, fully God and fully man, lived the perfect life that you could not and died a death that you deserved and rose from the dead and is coming one day, if you've not embraced that gospel by turning from sin and believing in him, that is how you seek mercy because it is only through that gospel that mercy is given. For those of us who have embraced that gospel and would yet seek greater mercy in our own lives. I'm going to suggest something counterintuitive to you. Don't try to be merciful. <laughs> that sounds weird, doesn't it? Oh my goodness, that's going online. Um, don't get me wrong, it's good to seek to be a merciful person. We, I mean, we ought to seek to be merciful. But if that's the aim, if that's what we're shooting for, then we're going to miss the gospel. The gospel is the wellspring of the mercy and so if you struggle to be merciful and decide that the way forward is just to try harder, then you're going to miss the gospel and your heart's not going to be changed. 
because it's only at the heart change level that God produces this kind of mercifulness in us, a merciful disposition. And so if you're by nature an unforgiving person or a bitter person, an angry person, a grudge-bearing person, a selfish person, an unconcerned person, trying harder won't change that. You'll end up losing steam and fall back into it. The only way forward is the way the whole thing began. So let me give you God's counsel on the matter. If we're not merciful by nature and we realize that we need to be, then we need to go to the place where that need is met. I'm going to read you from Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who one who is in every way has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In other words, we have a, a merciful high priest. Let us then, be, because we have that kind of high priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so if we would go to Jesus praying, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner, and make me merciful to sinners, do you think that he would delight to answer that prayer from the wellspring of his own mercy? I promise. I promise you he will. So we go to Jesus and commune with Jesus and talk to Jesus and seek repentance for our unmercifulness at the feet of Jesus. That is the only way to be merciful. Not in order to earn the mercy of God, but because he has already given more than we could ever know what to do with. And so as we confidently seek the Lord at the throne of grace to be transformed into the kind of merciful, gospel-saturated people who respond in mercy to others around us, we will find ourselves walking in the way of the Beatitudes because God has lavished his grace and mercy upon us. Please pray with me. Father of mercies and God of all comfort, we praise and thank you that you have lavished your mercy to us on Jesus through Jesus Christ and that you have given us your favor when we weren't looking for it, when we could never deserve it. We could never earn it. And Father, we, we see in Jesus the perfect picture of mercy and it casts a sharp contrast onto our own lives that we have not been near as merciful as we ought to be, that we have not shown his character near as much as he is worthy, and that we struggle with our own grudges and bitterness, unkindness, selfishness. Lord, this is our nature in the flesh, but would you overcome that nature through the cross? Help us to be a Jesus-devoted people, a communing people, a merciful people to others. And if anybody in here is hearing of the mercy of Christ for the first time or is just now seeing it for what it is, draw them all the way to Christ in faith and repentance. And may we as a church be a people who are known by acts of mercy because you are our merciful God every single day. Through Jesus Christ, our merciful and faithful high priest, we pray. Amen.